My name is Kate. And this is the podcast that uh, is called Diversify. How are you, Kate? So Holly was feeling a bit rubbish, so I decided that I was going to bring her not a bunch of flowers, but something that will last her whole life. It is a daffodil bulb inside a homemade Easter egg-looking thing, which sounds vulgar, but it is not. And it's yellow, which is good for happiness. And also, um, after they die in a few weeks' time, leave it out on the balcony and be surprised by it next spring when there are more daffodils on the balcony. Isn't that nice, Holly? Yeah, and she didn't know this, but uh, daffodils are one of the things that I get my girlfriend sometimes because she really likes how happy they are. And they were a gift for you and your girlfriend, so there you go. And that's why Kate is a good friend. (laughs) Speaking of... Finding joy in your life... Our wonderful guest today is Jasmine Pradhan, who is the founder of Balance Garden. Hello, Jasmine. Hello, Kate. Welcome to Diversify. I'm really happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Happy like a daffodil. Happy like a daffodil. Jasmine, can you tell us a little bit about what you do? So, I am a yoga teacher, but I also run an online magazine type thing called Balance Garden, which looks to connect ordinary people like us with all the amazing professionals that I've worked with over my years as a yoga teacher who have so much to share in the way of um, natural health and well-being. Um, So that's basically a platform for them to share their knowledge and for people to come and benefit from it. And just a disclaimer, I have written pieces for Balance Garden over the last year. Not about my expertise and knowledge, of which I have none, but just about finding a bit of calm in London when you can. Which is another really important aspect of it, the stuff that you write about, which is just navigating the ups and downs of modern urban living and putting that on paper for people to resonate with basically. It's been a really good read over the last year just picking up some of the articles that you've posted. There's a lot of variety and diversity within the work. Can you give some examples of things that some of your writers would touch on? Yeah so we've got a few coach type people so people who are either NLP practitioners. What's that? Neuro-linguistic programming. So I guess um, an unsexy word for it would be life coaching. But it's basically providing people with tools to become more self-aware and make changes that they want to change. How to start good habits, how to get better sleep, how to communicate in a way that is more productive. And so that's kind of one aspect of it. And then we've got food contributors, so people writing really, really good vegetarian and vegan recipes. I'm vegan, so I am living for this. I'm going to have to go and check out the recipe. There was one recently that was um, roasted aubergines with harissa and pomegranate molasses. And it was delicious, really good stuff. So that comes under a category that I've put on the site as the nourish category or the taste category. What we put in our bodies is important. And I think lots of people, well, I certainly, as a vegetarian, just run out of ideas. And I end up eating chickpeas out of the can, (laughs) like, three nights a week. So these are, like, really easy ways for people to get loads of fresh veg in. I find it so stressful these days trying to figure out what I should eat. 
I'm a pescatarian, then I went vegan, and then I went, oh, okay, well, I'll just eat, if it's going in the bin, I'll have it. So if I go home and my mum's cooked a roast, I'll eat it. But then you're thinking about other things, like if there's farmland versus if there's crops, like what that does to the environment, and there's just so many layers. And then they're going, well, you can't have almonds because there's a drought, and then you can't have soy because it's bad for your body. And it's just, it's baffling sometimes. But here's where the balance comes in. Because as a vegan, I know even my worst vegan decisions are so far and beyond better than my best meat decisions that I can just not feel bad about it all the time. Like when people go, yeah, but avocados though. I'm like, okay. Yeah, but avocados though. Yeah, well, people, you hear them all the time like, oh, almonds, they're just so thirsty. And it is true. I've actually stopped drinking almond milk and it's really easy for me, unless I'm having almond ice cream, to cut it out. But the answer is almond milk is still much better than cow's milk for the environment. It uses less water, it uses less resources. So the balance is we can't all be perfect all the time. But if we're just trying to do a little bit, then just stop beating ourselves up about it. Yeah, I think that comes through the writing is that you don't have to do it all. Like you don't have to be you know, meeting all your fitness goals and eating in the exact way that you'd like to and constantly being perfect and achieving at work and never needing a holiday it's about creating a culture of more permission i think to just not take it all so seriously and relax as much as you can around life that was definitely part of the thinking behind it i had a friend who i'm working with on a project at the moment who was apologizing for taking a holiday and i was like god you're gonna do such a better job when you get back if you actually take this holiday Sometimes we can just work ourselves into a stupor and think that we're still functioning at the same level that we would be if we were rested and relaxed and balanced. Mm. And yeah, I think that's really important. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I've just been away for a few months and I feel so much better just from having, you know, enough time to sleep and not having a to-do list and not having deadlines. Although I was working when I was out there, it was very different than the work I do here. It was much more my own schedule. Where were you? I was in uh, Nepal and then Thailand. Nepal with family. Brilliant. So we'll talk about Nepal a bit more in a bit, but I just wanted to ask you, this is a bit of a nosy question, but what's the response of people like, oh yeah, all that yoga stuff, it's like, well, hippy dippy. Like, what do you say to people that have that sort of attitude? To be honest, I kind of think fair enough, you know, sometimes it can be quite inaccessible, especially if you have not, you know, I grew up with parents that were very into alternative therapies and you know natural lifestyle stuff but if it's not part of your world it can sound alienating and I think that's part of the shortcomings of the sort of wellness scene or the you know yoga meditation scene is sometimes it can feel a bit unwelcoming unless you know the jargon and the lingo and you're wearing the right clothes can feel like you're not really welcome but actually once you get below the surface level of using words that people may not be familiar with or ways of dressing I think there is definitely a yoga style for everyone. They just need to soften and try a lot of things. You know, quite often people have gone to a class and been like, that's not for me. They chanted all the way through. Okay, try another class with another teacher. Everyone teaches differently. Everyone's going to bring their own bit of life experience to what they're doing. Yeah. Also, I do think you get this view, particularly in the white community, of a certain white hippie who's walking around with a bindi and wearing harem pants and those little summer scarves and (laughs) you're like, I find that really off-putting and so I can actually sometimes be guilty of elements of that but I think it comes from 
certain views of certain aspects of it and the same with like these health bloggers and stuff so often it just goes against science and I think that I can find it damaging Mm. but when you find the people who are actually serious about it and know what they're talking about and are not doing it in a performative way I know for a fact that yoga would help me like I've I did it when I was at acting school during one of my uh, pieces, our director was learning to be a yoga instructor. And so our warm up was 10 minutes of yoga mm, a day. Amazing. And it changed yeah. my grounding. And so I think, yeah, so much of it is just going past all the bullshit faux hippies and finding the people who actually are like, yeah, no, I actually went and studied this mm. rather than, oh, I just went to this amazing class in Kensington and now it's so sad. <laughs> I think as well, though, there's. I've always said to my students that I might not be the teacher for them, you know, and I think there's a teacher for everyone. And some people really thrive off that airy-fairy, peace and love and unicorn fart thing. They love that, and, you know, that helps them to feel more self-aware. I personally prefer a slightly more down-to-earth, grounded approach, but the beauty is that people bring completely different teaching styles to the table, and there really is, I think, something for everyone. Just got to look for a teacher that resonates. It's mindfulness, isn't it? Well, that's, yeah, that's one thing I wanted to touch into, actually, is that, you know, yoga, essentially, as a practice and a tradition, is much more than just the shapes and the stretches and the strengthening that maybe we come to associate it with. And there, there is a key, key element, which is mindfulness and meditation and moving into stillness and self-awareness and all of those things. So it's quite a complex practice. Yeah, and if anything, it's just taught me how to breathe and not hold my breath when I'm really stressed out. Like mm. Now if I'm stressed, I think I breathe better and become like more, more relaxed. But anyway, so let's talk about your journey into Balanced Garden. You, you said that you had parents who were very into sort of alternative therapies. Can you talk about how that drove you to, or did it drive you to do that? Or was it just a coincidence or? I think from a very young age, natural health has just been a really key part of my life. So my uncle is a homeopath and a aromatherapist and my aunt was also trained in homeopathy. My mum is a shiatsu practitioner, although she doesn't actually practice anymore, but it's always been a big focus. I think there's a really, really big place for Western medicine in our lives. It's great, it saves lives, it's amazing. I also think we are massively over-medicated and that a lot of the problems that we come across can be dealt with natural alternatives. Um, So yeah, it's just always been part of my life. I've always been given herbs to deal with period pains rather than paracetamol and stuff like that. So I I suppose it was kind of natural that I was drawn to yoga as a way to naturally manage stress and anxiety levels, which is why I initially got into it. And then that just evolved. I met so many interesting people with so many interesting perspectives on, you know, self-healing and self-nourishment and really managing your your own health rather than putting it in the hands of somebody who wants to give you drugs. Yeah. What kind of food did you eat when you were growing up? You're vegetarian. I would strictly and exclusively only eat darba, which is Nepali food. So basmati rice, dal made from lentils, and then some cooked vegetables. Oh, that's like the dream. Yeah. <laughs> I was so fussy. Like, they used to drive my mum crazy because when we moved here, she'd be like, you have to eat something else. I'd be like, I don't like pasta. <laughs> I don't like butter. I don't like toast. <laughs> so but, so but sorry for her. you lived in Nepal until you were... Eight. Yeah. What was the move like? 
Was there any culture shock? Can you remember that far back? Were you like, whoa, everyone in London is super stressed? We actually <laughs> lived in, um, so we lived in Lewis, which was even more different because Lewis is like really white middle class. And so there wasn't even the sort of diversity of faces or people. It was a massive, massive shock to my system. I didn't really know how to use a knife and fork because you eat with your hands in Nepal. I used to sit down and take my shoes off outside of shops and supermarkets because that's what you do in Nepal. I really suddenly left what had been my home for a really long time and yeah, I think I became quite a difficult child for a few years. I had a lot of confusion and a lot of anxiety and yeah, it wasn't nice, <laughs> the move. And you, your mum's white and you grew up in a predominantly white family when you moved over to Sussex, is that right? Yeah, yeah, so my mum's family are all English from Sussex and then my dad's family are all traditional Nepali from Kathmandu, so quite a meeting of worlds. And then all of a sudden you moved to uh, this place where there were just a bunch of straight white Kates walking around. <laughs> Luckily I met Kate. He's <laughs> uh, <Please>, the transition. <laughs> Great. Um, so when you became an adult, as we all do, supposedly, and you decided that you wanted to connect more with your Nepalese heritage and you mm. went and lived there for a year. Yes. Can you tell us about what that was like, why you did it? Yeah, I, um, I'd been studying to relearn the language at university because although my aunts and uncles in Nepal speak English, my grandma doesn't. And so the only way I could communicate with her was through someone translating. And my father died when I was 17 and he was my prime translator. He would pass the messages on to her and stuff. And I just really wanted to be able to talk to her. So I studied the language and the year there was to obviously cement the language skills but I got to live with my grandma for a year which was one of the most full-on and amazing years of my life. Very very different from life here let's put it that way. What were the main differences that you noticed when you went over there? Wait let me guess, she spoke Nepalese. <laughs> that as well. But I think actually the main thing was realising how much freedom we have as women growing up in the West, or at least in England, even at times when it feels like we don't. She just couldn't believe that this teenage girl was allowed to travel halfway across the world without a chaperone. The fact that I wanted to go out after 5pm and maybe meet some friends for a, a beer was just completely beyond her. She even asked me once, does your mother not love you? Because I'd moved out from home, which is obviously really normal here. We leave when we're 17, 18. And there in Nepal, girls live with their parents until they're married and then they move to the husband's house. So, yeesh. Yeah. There was quite a lot of arguments about what I was and wasn't allowed to do, let's put it that way. So this podcast is all about diversity and you know it's a very feminist podcast. Mm. Having had that experience with uh, your grandmother and being able to see the different expectations and the pros and cons, I guess, of living in such a liberal society, what do you think then that feminism is to you in terms of the freedoms that we have, what we want in terms of like culture clashes? What, what did it kind of teach you about what it meant to want equality, I guess? Yeah, I think to me, there is just no one definition 
for any one person. And what I saw in my family there, so for instance, my aunts had had arranged marriages and I at first was just completely appalled by the idea. I couldn't understand it. I would ask them loads of questions like, how could you let this happen to you? And they were just like, you know what? I'm really happy. Me and my husband have built a strong relationship. We're still together. We respect each other. We listen to each other. Divorce is not an option. We make it work. There was genuine love and happiness there. So I don't feel like they were deluding themselves. They felt like they had gained from being very committed. Yeah, so seeing them fulfilled in their life, you know, my auntie also has a job. It's not like she's just at home cooking and cleaning. She had quite a high power job in an NGO. So her definition of happiness and freedom as a woman was very different from mine. I think as well in like Western feminism, that is often white feminism mm. it's this idea that you have to pick all the most autonomous bits about being a woman to be a feminist it's the same thing with like um why people wear hijab and why people still choose to have arranged marriages and stuff it's like it's about choice it's about choice yeah. and if you're okay with doing that so many arranged marriages are far more successful and built on respect than a lot of yeah Western marriages between two middle-class white people who hate living guts off each yeah. other. Romanticism just ruined us, didn't it? <laughs> there are some things where you do see actual oppression, for example, women not being able to leave the house on their own in certain cultures, and then there are some things where it's not about oppression, it's just culture. Yeah, and I think, you know, it's, I personally wouldn't advocate for my children to have arranged marriages, and my mum was very clear with my dad that that wouldn't be happening with me, but at the same time it's not as cut and dry as looking at that situation and saying, oh, that person is less free than I am, because I just don't think it works like that. When you lived with your grandma, you had already met the man you were going to marry, hadn't you? <laughs> yes. How did she feel about that? Well, one day, and this is a spoiler, I'm going to write a book called The Lies I Tell My Grandma <laughs> <laughs> about all the things that I have to not quite tell the full truth about to her. So, Is she still alive? Yeah, yeah, she is. We just, we've just spent some time with her, actually. Um, How old is she? She doesn't know. What? Yeah. They didn't really do birth certificates back in her day, so... <laughs> Age? She, old? She has as a guess, <laughs> yeah. We put her probably in her like mid to late 80s. Wow. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. She is amazing. She is one of the most amazing people I've ever met in my entire life. Real hero. But, um, yeah, I broke the news gently and they were just very confused, you know. Well, what do you mean you've got a boyfriend? When are you getting married? When are you getting married? When are you getting married? And then, finally, five years in, we did get married and now she's really happy. <laughs> I mean, that still happens... Yeah. Christian households yeah. in the, and yeah. non-religious households. Like, I don't really have to deal with it much because I'm super gay. My stepmom <laughs> asks me when I'm getting married all the time, I don't even have a boyfriend. <laughs> Nobody really asks me. Occasion, <laughs> occasionally. Married, you have to deal with a lot of other shit when you're gay. But people don't ask you that mm. as much anymore. You sometimes get the, do you want kids? Mm. And then how are you going to choose to have it? But you don't get that kind of, uh, when you're getting married though, what about that little womb? It's not yeah. going to be what it once was. Clogs are ticking. They're Maybe super direct in Nepal as well. It's like the first time how I met my auntie, she's like, so, do you own a house? <laughs> it's like, um, no. How much do you earn every year then? And they just want to know, like, instantly, is this man good enough? Is he going to be able to provide? Which I take massive issue to, because I'm like, I have a job, hello. <laughs> I can provide for myself. But, um, yeah, they, they're very concerned that we get looked after. <laughs> Obviously, when you were over there and when you introduced your boyfriend, they'd had your mother in their life for quite a while. What was it like for her when she first entered their family as a white woman? 
she was very lucky to have met my dad and my dad to have the family that he did because it's a really traditional society and actually for your son to have a a white girlfriend that is not in the correct ethnic group that they want you to marry is a big deal for a family. But my grandma is an incredibly compassionate and understanding and loving woman. She's just got the biggest heart. And I don't think it was easy for them at all, for my dad's family to accept my mum, but they did, you know? And, and so my mum, I think, was really blessed to end up in that family because my grandma was just like, if this is what's happening, then we're gonna, you're gonna be welcome. That's so nice. And then years later, it was a lot easier for her to let me into her kitchen, <laughs> yeah. which is another thing. You shouldn't let anyone from outside the family into the kitchen. And after about an hour, she went, yeah, she can come. Oh, go on then. <laughs> <laughs> Help us wash the dishes. <laughs> um, can you tell us a bit more about the caste system in Nepal? And what the caste system means? It's, it's, yeah, <laughs> you have to line up, I want to be Nepalese, and they pick the ones that fit the best casting. Right? <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, I forgot your actors. <laughs> so it's slightly different to the Indian caste system, which probably more people would be familiar with. But if you think of it as lots and lots of small ethnic groups, and within those ethnic groups there are certain social hierarchies, so Nepal wasn't a country to begin with, it was just lots of people that had settled and they had migrated from the south, from India, and also from the north, from Tibet, and from the east and west. So it's a massively diverse country for the size of it. And it's also very mountainous, so it's not like everybody flooded to one place, started mixing, and then you were left with kind of one melting pot of cultures. It was quite separate until roads started to be built and people started to be able to afford to make the journey to travel Nepal or look for work in the city. In that way, the caste system is really just like these massive extended family groups, which date, you know, they go way back. So now you're talking about multiple hundreds of families within an ethnic group. But um, there are rules about who you can share water with, so whether you should accept water from someone who's outside of your ethnic group. I really don't like the word caste because it does indicate a hierarchy, which I am just not on board with. Um, and there are still rules around that, like who you should accept food from, who you should accept water from, whose houses you should go to. You know, historically it has been the site of a lot of oppression and inequality, but more and more it is becoming something of the past. And, you know, in the constitution now, it, officially we don't have a caste system anymore. That's so. good. It's interesting, that stuff happens in the UK as well. Maybe not as drastic as accepting water and stuff, mm. but you still have families not feeling comfortable about going down the road to the black neighbourhood and class as well yeah. like these buildings that are part private and part council and they're building hedges so the council tenants can't go and play in the communal oh spaces God. like it still happens we had some training where i work recently and we were talking about sort of prejudice and different types you can get and someone said, well, what about class? And apparently we're a classless society now, but... Class doesn't mean what it used to mean, but the system still exists. It's mm. just like, I just feel a bit superior to them. Yeah, it's that parallels as we're also a country that's steeped in tradition. And because you don't want to let go of certain traditions, you end up holding on to things that are just archaic and terribly damaging to the society that you're currently living in, mm. which... As I understand it, is there's an element of that in the history of uh, Nepalese politics. Yeah, so for a very long time it was warring tribes sort of taking over from each other 
and then power fell into the hands of the king and it was that way for a very long time so Nepal was unified there was one king for the entire country absolute power was invested in the king and then it changed in the last century yeah so in the 1990s they had their first democratic government which was a huge huge deal you know because until then political parties had been illegal you were not allowed to have any dissentive voices um so that was a huge deal it hasn't worked particularly well but it, was, <laughs> it was a great idea and it's you know it's ever improving i suppose did your family have anything to do with what was going on in the 1990s? Was there any involvement there? Yeah, I come from a very politically active family, so my dad was actually quite heavily involved in politics. And the fight for democracy was his baby, really. He was um, part of a political party called the Nepali Congress Party, who were the first elected political party in Nepal, and he was very, very much involved in that process. He was a great man, I hear, from everybody that we met in the pool, and they would know who Jazz was, and they'd say, I, I knew your, your dad, he was fantastic, mm. which is really special. He was a great man. He, you know, he was human and he had many shortcomings, but certainly he was very well known for being someone that wanted to make life fairer, which I think is the thing that people remember about him. He was very fair, he was very kind... You know, where, where other people perhaps would turn a blind eye to injustice and inequality, he was very committed to the social justice fight. Um, let's talk about Gorka earthquake. Is that how you say it? Gurkha and Gorka are just different pronunciations of the same Why is it called word. that then? There are different ways to spell it, so then different ways to pronounce it. But yes, Gurkha was the epicentre, or one of the epicentres of the earthquake. When was that? 2015. Mm. When that happened, what did you do? Well, I was here and uh, my housemate came into my room to tell me and I I really needed to see my family, so I just went I went straight away. Although no one, no, none of my family was hurt, but um, I really felt like I needed to see my grandma and just be there with them. And while I was there, I, I was given the opportunity to do some bits and pieces of relief work, which was... Um, it was really hard to see the country struggling like that. But when things like this happen, there's for me, there's just this real need to be close to the people that I love, and that was really the driving force of going out. I didn't go specifically to go and do aid work or anything, but it did end up that way. <laughs> I did end up getting involved with a really interesting guy who was just very organised, because that was part of the problem was no-one could get themselves organised. It just it was chaos, basically, and a lot of money and aid was going missing or being detained and there was a lot of inaction from the government. So people just sort of took things into their own hands, which is amazing, but it meant that it was all a bit haphazard and slapdash. But the guy that I met was, you know, just getting the basics together, tarpaulins, sacks of rice, cooking oil and salt. We'd drive them to an area that had been badly hit and just provide people with basic stuff to tide them over until the official aid started to filter through. I just think you're amazing because... There's so many people that you'll meet that call themselves activists and call themselves social justice warriors. And it's great to have these conversations, but I just think going out there and actually getting shit done, it's just the most important thing. You know, that was one instance where I just thought, wow, I, you know, with my British passport, I can come and go to this place as I choose. And it woke me up even more to 
the amount of privilege that I have and around privilege I try not to have too much guilt or shame and instead I just try to have an awareness and a gratitude and to make sure that I never ever take it for granted and I never ever use it to deny someone else or put someone else below. I think gratitude's a really nice thing. I think people when you talk to them first about privilege they can get really defensive but I think gratitude for your privilege is such a great thing yeah because guilt leads to defensiveness which stops you really engaging with it in a um, productive way I think Um, as soon as you can just accept things for how they are and stop trying to pretend that they're otherwise then you have a much better chance of actually connecting with other people and maybe using your privilege for something positive other than pretending it doesn't exist and stomping through the world with it strapped to your back while it knocks other people out of the way you know like a big bag on the tube (laughs) or something yeah I'm thinking about this a lot that whatever we experience if we have a strong foundation within the families and within the communities we've grown up it's a lot easier to deal with and to feel balanced Jasmine, you've been through so much. How much has your family on both sides helped you sort of stay grounded throughout some of the stressful times? My mum's side of the family are incredibly open and um, really able to touch into difficult emotions and name them and talk about them and cry about them. So that's always been amazing to have that, just to be able to talk about how you feel and have someone listen to you. And my dad's side of the family are, they're a bit less openly emotional, but there are really strong family ties where you just know that there's support. I think it is really important to have a strong family tie. I think I'm hesitant to put our resilience strongly on that because many people don't have strong families and many people actually feel a bit alone in the world. And ultimately, I do think it all lies within us. So strong family ties can really help us to feel resilient, but they just bring out aspects of ourselves that actually exist within us anyway. Community is really important, so I think looking outside to friends and to colleagues and to people that share the same interests as you can be as supportive and as important. I think we need to accept that to a certain extent you can choose your family. Totally. Because if you're in a toxic family, for example, and you just need to turn your back on it or tragically they turned their back on you Mm. um i'm thinking of like you know my gay brothers and sisters and um, non-binary family i think you can find family that isn't blood so what's next for balance garden you've got the online magazine you've got the yoga retreats and the yoga events that you're doing where do you see it going in the next few years so i'd really like there to be more of a live element to it bringing people together in real life in a room radical in 2019 (laughs) we're actually all uh holograms in this room (laughs) but yeah more retreats would be the dream you know and combining the discipline so what i've loved about balance garden is it has people from many different disciplines you know because quite often retreats are just a yoga retreat or they're just a writer's retreat and actually all these things that we pursue are i think ultimately for the same end which is to feel you know more connection and more self-aware and more happy <laughs> more joyful um yeah. finding your tribe and then expanding that tribe as yeah well. and just learning new stuff and learning from each other and yeah that sort of thing so that would be great and um there's plans of releasing a quarterly seasonal living kind of almanac which would be a paid offering but would go much more into cycles and um living in tune with the seasons um 
we end each episode with a series of questions that we think are important ways to really delve into the truth in our psyche. And I think the most important is... The single uh, most important question of all time. What's, what's your, your favourite Disney, Disney movie? <laughs> oh, it has to be Aladdin because I'm Princess Jasmine. <laughs> oh, Princess Jasmine. And my husband is Hal. <laughs> so this hasn't been a particularly Debbie Downer episode, but um, we're obviously going through a difficult period of time and we talk about a lot of this stuff on the podcast and we talk about our anxieties and our anger towards what's happening, but we like to end every single episode with a little bit of sunshine just to remind ourselves that some things are getting better and that they're worth commenting and focusing on. So can you think of a little bit of sunshine, something that's getting better? There is one thing I do feel positive about, and that is that, you know, stuff like climate, and t- as simple as plastic pollution, it's actually becoming something that we care about. And it's really easy to dismiss, you know, using a reusable coffee cup or not using straws as just like something minor. And it is minor and there's much more work to be done. But at least we're having the conversation and at least people that have previously not given a shit about recycling or even respecting the resources that they're using are actually beginning to think about it and to make some more informed choices. And that is something I see definitely growing and definitely getting better. Mm. You definitely don't have those conversations with people being like, oh, recycling is not cool yeah. anymore. I well, remember even vegetarianism is not cool. It used to be weird in the 80s, mm. didn't it? Oh my God. And now, like, everybody's afraid and petrified of these vegan sausage rolls. It's getting so big that people are now, like, genuinely afraid of us. <laughs> <laughs> taking over the world. Thank You're you, in Greg's. You've made it into Greg's. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, that's another thing. Veganism is, yeah. and, and vegetarianism, but just in general, flexitarianism. People keep saying it's a phase and it's a trend and it's really not. And it's not going away. But that's the thing, is that because flexitarianism is now almost an actual term, it means that we'll at least be more conscious. And again, having a balance. And if you're choosing for whatever reason to not go full vegan, you're still doing good. I always make jokes whenever like a new cool vegan thing comes out and think the vegan revolution is here. Ah." And it's a way to like make it palatable to people, but it's true. It's just true. Peter Express and I have an entire vegan menu. Yeah, Yeah. and if you think like even five or six years ago, that would be completely unheard of. Have you been veggie your entire life? In my entire life, and the only thing on the menu for the entire time that I've been eating food in England, goat's cheese tarts, which I, I really don't like goat's cheese, and that's it. If you're a vegetarian, that's what you used to get, goat's cheese tart. Tomato pasta? Yeah, tomato pasta. But now you just go into restaurants and, like, there's so much variety, so many options, and, yeah. I feel like that's a very good bit of sunshine for a bunch of, uh... Foodies. Foodies. Everybody loves a bit of food. Um, plugs, plugs, put it in the plugs, turn it on, and electricity happens. So, the Balance Garden website... <laughs> Let's just ignore that. That's definitely going That's on. definitely going again. Um... The Balance Garden website is... www.balancegarden.co.uk And you're on Twitter and Instagram, and that's all Balance Garden. Yeah, they're all the same, at Balance Garden, all one word. And there's a Facebook page as well. I am on Twitter and Instagram as Kate Lois Elliott, two L's, two T's. 
you can send us an email at ourteamq at gmail.com if you want to share your opinions on recipes what we're about recipes good vegan places <laughs> please <laughs> and uh anything you want us to talk about if you want to send us a gif of a cat and also we are on instagram at diversify podcast <laughs> and we're on twitter at diversify pod or hashtag diversify pod and i occasionally tweet something snarky at some politician <laughs> and a lot at julia hartley brewer the jhb um thank you for listening please do rate and subscribe and download the episodes because it just means that we can get the word out there um and and, and the word was and what was it they said and the word was i don't know what you're talking about the bible yeah I mean, I haven't been a Christian for years. And I said, let there be shameless self-promotion. <laughs> and I said, and let the there be diversity up and down the w- world. world. <laughs> oh, now we're flat earthers. Uh, <laughs> have a fantastic week, diversifiers. Um, and uh, see ya. Fuck the racists. Fuck the racists. Fuck the racists.